and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. I'm Sebastian. And I'm Janelle. And in this bonus episode, we are reading Non-Monogamy Agreements and Safer Sex Behaviours, The Role of Perceived Sexual Self-Control. This is an academic article published in the journal Psychology and Sexuality in 2019, Volume 10, Issue Number 4. It is authored by David L. Rodriguez, Dinez Lopez, and Terry D. Connolly. All three of the authors hold PhDs in social psychology, and David L. Rodriguez, the primary author, is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Lisbon in Portugal. But before we get into this amazing article, I want to introduce our bonus co-host. Hi, Janelle. Where are you calling from? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm calling from the mountains, Asheville, North Carolina, USA. Great. And can you maybe introduce yourself a little bit for the people that have been living underneath a rock? (laughs) Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So yes, um, my name is Janelle Marie Pierce, and I am the executive director of the STI Project. I am also the spokesperson for PositiveSingles.com and the founder of the Herpes Activist Network, which is called HANDS, and that stands for Herpes Activists Networking to Dismantle Stigma. I'm an STI-positive sexual health educator and content creator, and my work revolves around dismantling stigma by reclaiming STI narratives through awareness, education, and acceptance. I wear a few other hats and uh, participate in a couple of other member organizations and industry organizations, but essentially that's what I do in a nutshell. Excellent. We're so excited to have you. And hi, Sebastian. Where are you? Hi, Claire. I am in Boston in my office watching the gloomy, gloomy Boston weather. And where are you? I am in Aqaba in Jordan in the Middle East, and the sun has gone down here. <laughs> so yes, everyone obviously has, as with all of our episodes, everyone has read this and it's the first time we're going to discuss this all together but I thought Sebastian you could give us a bit of an overview of what they what they propose in this article. Sure Um, so this is a a really interesting article Uh, it's something we've been talking about for a while trying to explore a little bit more how uh, non-monogamous relationships might affect STI transmission education attitudes towards them Uh, And so the paper is looking at a study that was done in Portugal by this group. It's part of a larger study. So they've written uh, a handful of papers based on the data they collected. Uh, In this paper, they were looking at how different relationship agreements um, of people on a specific Portuguese dating site impacted their attitudes towards condom use uh, and their um, self-control. So the two things they really looked at in this article were Um, differences in condom use and differences in perceived sexual self-control, which is something we'll talk about a little bit more and based on other work they did and how that perceived sexual self-control of different people and people in different relationship um, formats impacted their attitudes towards condom use in different situations. And they did find some really interesting correlations that, uh, that we'll talk about through the paper, but it was a really interesting way to look at this phenomenon it was a and it was nice to look at something that wasn't based in the u.s yeah i was about to say i'm really happy that this was something that was not u.s based <laughs> janelle what did you think what did you think of the paper janelle generally 
Yeah. So first of all, I think it's important to point out, like as we go through this discussion, the the representative population or the population that they had was not necessarily representative of all um, orientations as well as all races. That race actually isn't discussed at all. And I would be really interested or wish wish that that would have been included as part of their breakdown. They did um, they did break down male female identifying, and it's primarily male. It's very heavily weighted as like I think it was seventy seven percent folks who are male identifying, and then race was not discovered. And this also did not um, talk about. Um, varying orientations like this didn't include necessarily an LGBTQ population. So there's a little bit of limitation there. And I just think that that's really important for our listeners to know that going forward through this discussion. Like this is just one small, you know, one small subset of a of a group of folks on one one website. So it is there was a lot of interesting stuff. Of course, we're going to chit chat about that. But I think it's also very important to like lay that foundation right from the start of who this population is representing or who is who is represented in this study. Yeah, in fact, the study only talks about, uh, well, the, the data set for the study is only 512 explicitly heterosexual respondents who use Second Love. And just for some context, Second Love is basically an online dating website in Portugal, which mainly targets romantically involved people to facilitate extra didactic interactions and obviously also allows single people to register and interact with the users, which is why they have single users as well as what they call consensually non-monogamous and non-consensually non-monogamous. And I think it's really important to talk about those terms in the way the article uses them because they're a little bit different from how we use them, especially on this podcast. So they use uh, consensually non-monogamous people uh, as the people who have responded to a very specific question in their survey, which was people who had talked about having an open relationship and we have agreed to have sex with other people. And those people were coded as consensually non-monogamous. Whereas the people that were coded as non-consensually non-monogamous were basically the people who did not say that that is what they had discussed and were still engaging in casual relationships outside of what they assume is a primary relationship. So just some notes I think on that would be helpful to start to frame this discussion. Agreed, agreed. So one other thought that I had as I was going through this, there were one or two little areas that kind of, um, I screenshotted it on my phone. I'll pull Welcome to Poly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine poly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. And their final analyses and making their conclusions that they were also non-monogamous or polyamorous. I, um, that their relationship structures and that, that their personal, there was a little bit of personal bias in some of that language choice. And I'll pop back through it when it, when it pertains to what we're chit-chatting about. But it was interesting because I thought, I wonder if that's also where some of the motivation for this study came from and some of the accessibility to, um, you know, the access to that website and the folks in relation to that. So just a side note. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, they definitely seem I looked at one of their other studies for reference, the, one of the ones that they based some of their other assumptions on. Um, and I, I think I agree with you that th there is a little bit of bias towards that. 
I think sort of going off your other point too about being really clear about the, the sort of smaller, the focus of the population they're working on, they also focus very much on primary partnerships. So they focus on a very small subset or not a very small subset, but a subset of non-monogamous relationships. So I think it's still really relevant research. It's interesting to talk about, but we should really be clear as we're going into this, that they focused on a very heterosexual portion of non-monogamous relationships. And it's not, it's definitely, there are conclusions to be drawn more broadly, but they've focused it pretty narrowly um, for the purposes of their research. And I will say now, even though we're pointing out some of the, like, here are the limitations, what's, what's wonderful in, in, positive about this is that there hasn't been tons of studies, tons of research into open relationships, non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy and polyamory in a way that is that talks about the benefits and the positive things around safer sex and such. So, I mean, even though this is a limited study, this is still it's refreshing to see that these kind of relationship structures are being considered as very viable, very healthy, that that may Im- impact us in a really positive way. So that said, you know, it's like six to one, half a dozen of the other, of course. Yeah, one of the, the key sort of, I think, motivations of the authors of the study, which they do state in this, as well as their other studies, that ca- their other published work that came off of the study, is that they would like to see this knowledge taken further and extended in in ways that are a bit more tangible, specifically the way that social interventions are done regarding HIV and STI awareness. Obviously, the implication being, uh, or their, their hope being, that if you can tailor the information or the way that that information is delivered to be um, a bit more applicable to consensually non-monogamous um, couples or individuals, uh, depending on, on how you, you identify yourself, um, that it can actually be more effective. And I think that's a really lovely motivation that comes through very strongly in this and the other papers that they do on this study. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of the, the results or correlations that they find, which I was really interested to read about, and I'm wondering if they kind of ring true to our personal experiences or to the other studies that we've read. The first one that they kind of point out on page 345 is that consensually non-monogamous people reported having significantly more lifetime casual partners than single people, which I thought was very interesting to see that actually down on paper. It's something that I don't know has been measured elsewhere in, in quite the same way. What did, what did you make of that, Janelle? Well, and I feel like there, I, I'm always, I'm always the naysayer or the person pointing out, like, I'm not sure that I believe in all of these things for, for sure, because this is self-reporting, right? So I think that there might be a slight inherent bias from the folks who are participating because a, a consensually non-monogamous person is going to be at least my perception anecdotally is going to be happy to talk about the number of partners and what their experience is in a different kind of way than somebody who is um, is a is a monogamous person and is 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 set up with that culture and is you know kind of ingrained with really what our culture says is like too many partners or you don't want to have too many or what does that mean about you and this like this paradigm about slut shaming and and all of that so I'm I'm wondering if they're if that's really true because I I find that hard to believe I'm just not sure that I'm like I'm kind of shocked by it not that it's not factual, but I'm just wondering if the folks who are reporting this are truly being honest with that disclosure. I mean, what? there's really not anything that would harm them by being 
by being forthright about it, but I'm also just, I'm just a little bit shocked about it. And that's one of the main problems with a self-reported survey is that there's always some amount of bias and especially with the sample size that they have, which is not small. It's, it's just, you know, a statistically significant sample, but it's still a smaller sample to draw such large, large conclusions. But the other thing that I, that I think is interesting about this is they don't delineate in the single category between singles who are consensually non-monogamous and non-consensually non-monogamous. Um, they treat all single people as the same, whereas my inclination would be to say that if you have single people who are self-identifying as, as non-monogamous versus single people who would be monogamous if, if in a relationship, that also could skew that. Um, and not having that delineation, you don't, you could have one non, you know, you could have one person who skews the average or 10% who are non-monogamous who have had multiple partners and are more sexually active versus uh, monogamous people who have individual partners. And so I think that's another limitation in that, uh, in not breaking those down in the single category. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. There's so many, it, I mean, this is, it, it's great. The, the study is great. We're, we're, it's, it's starting to tap into an area that really hasn't been discussed and considered. Um, so that's all really beneficial, but there are so many unanswered questions. Actually, I have, I came out of looking at and reading through the study with more questions than answers. And, and some of it was like, from my perspective, because of my experience, I already knew these answers and it was just confirmed. So that was interesting too. And, and great to see that you know, officially on paper and in kind of a in, a, in a little bit more, less anecdotal, more professional and researched way. But yeah, I still truly was kind of like, oh, I just don't feel like this is, this is really telling a full, complete story. I mean, it's so, it's so limited in that kind of way yet. It's just like the very, it's the very tip of the iceberg. So another one of the key findings, and I think maybe, maybe the key finding out of this paper is the, they believe their results show that um, that perceived self-control is uh, much lower in single people than in non-consensually non-monogamous and consensually non-monogamous people, and that perceived self-control was positively associated with condom use frequency for non-consensually non-monogamous people. Now that is a lot of things, so let's just um, unpack what they actually mean by those believed findings. So. When they use the term self-control for sexual self-control, uh, what they're talking about there is, is, I think, sort of a bit fluffy. Even reading back over the other studies that they've done, I found it really hard to fully grasp what they meant by that. And again, it's a self-report. And when you have a look at the, the associated um, sort of uh, level of agreement that you could have given, the statement that they use is, I would find it easy to turn down unsafe sex. That's the... If you, if you find it easy to turn down unsafe sex, they're saying that you have better sexual self-control. And if you find it difficult to do that, then they're saying that you have a very low level of sexual self-control. And I just don't think that that is well enough fleshed out. I agree 100%. I was like, through the entire study, 
I kept thinking to myself, what is this? And specifically, they're talking sexual self-control. At one point in time, there's an error where they just write self-control. And that's when one of the ones I screenshotted because I thought, uh-oh, like that is very broad in such a subjective way. And what they were really referencing is sexual self-control. But like you're saying, Claire, that is incredibly broad and super subjective. It is based on... Um, a couple of parameters, like a, a list of questions that get asked. The one that you talked about, Claire, is one that they referenced in the study, but it it also links to an earlier study from 1992 that like qualifies what sexual self-control is. But I feel like that's so subjective and is a little too... I would have liked for them to have qualified that in the study a little bit more in depth to really kind of help define for the reader what that really entails for the individual who's answering those questions. The one other thing I'll add just in, in defense of them, maybe like in addition to basing this on previous, uh, you know, their, their initial survey tools were based on other research, but some of the assumptions that they're sort of using here as, as for how they did the analysis in this this part of the study is a different study they did that just focused on the correlation between um, sexual self-control and condom use. So that was a, a separate analysis that really just focused on this use of sexual self-control. Um, it, it's the same basic data set that they used, but it's a deeper analysis on that portion of the data that they collected. And so I do think there are some limitations and they, they're there are ways that this could be improved going forward, but sort of in defense of them using this, they did have a fully, uh, a full analysis. They wrote a whole paper using this data set just on the use of the sexual self-control. So sort of in defense of that, um, if we're going to pick it apart, we should give them the, the other, other side too. You know, with some of the stuff where I feel like as they talk about it here, it's a little bit vague. It's because they're self-referencing a, a supplemental study and that supplemental study is, uh, gives a little bit more justification for for how they're drawing these conclusions. I have to say that I I found sometimes reading this it it did seem a bit circular because they were self referencing quite a lot. But that is what happens when you write a very in depth like series of very in depth studies on the same uh, subjects with the same with the same data set. So they have claimed in this that they found a correlation between. Um, single people single people which we've already like sort of discussed is a bit of a vague term and lower levels of sexual self-control and they then they then take it i think and and add this i would say pretty pretty non-contested point which is that if you have a greater uh, sense of sexual self-control then you're more likely to negotiate economies with casual partners um which obviously because of the the modality that they've used to find out what sexual self-control is was kind of, I think, a given. But I think it kind of also, just in a sort of common sense way, makes makes a lot of, of sense to me that if you feel like you have more agency in a situation, then you're more likely to engage in condom negotiation. Um, whether or not that actually ends up resulting in condom use is, I think, a separate issue that we should discuss separately because obviously a well-negotiated discussion doesn't necessarily always lead to using barrier protection. Um, but it did make a lot of like intuitive sense to me that whatever you're trying to talk about when you talk about sexual self-control, that the more you have of it in a given situation or, um, and I think it is situational, um, the more you have of it, the more likely you are to engage in a negotiation about condom use. 
Did that seem like a common sense takeaway from this to you or was that surprising? I 100% agree. And that's, and I think that's where I got hung up initially when I was reading through like the sexual self-control and you used the perfect word agency. I would have loved to have seen that as well as autonomy um, and sexual responsibility maybe incorporated in there. On the STI project and the work that I do across the board, social media and, and everywhere else, I talk about sexual responsibility a lot. And that is not necessarily self-control to me like I get caught up on that because we really don't have full control when we're engaging in sexual activities with another partner partners there's always risk involved and there's only so much of control we actually have in terms of our risk we can reduce risk but nothing is safe 100% safe once we're engaging in, in partnered activities and that that mindset that understanding that education to me is super important in the work I do to help people feel a sense of responsibility so that if something happens well before even something happens they can have that agency to negotiate what is going to make them feel comfortable in that interaction and in that relationship and whatever whatever they'd like to go forward and whatever they'd like to do physically going forward with that partner or partners and then if something does happen positive and or negative they take that sense of responsibility because there's a lot of this like I think this, there's a loss of feeling like it's, it's, it, there's a lot of blame and finger pointing, especially when we're talking about STI transmission and, um, and some of the not so wonderful outcomes that can occur when you're sharing yourself intimately with another partner or partner. So that I, I just like would have liked to see a lot different um, language use applied so that we could understand that a little bit more fully because you really pointed it out. And that is very much what we see across the board anecdotally with the work that I've done and on the STI project is that the more people have, the more education folks have around what relevant risks um, are, are applicable to them and their relationships and their dynamics, their relationship dynamics, then the more likely they are to advocate for themselves, to advocate for what they need to feel comfortable, not necessarily to feel safe, because again, there's no real such thing as like safe sex of any kind that's partnered, um, but to feel comfortable and good about the decisions that they're making. And so then whatever does happen and whatever comes of it, whether it's emotional or physical, as a result, they understand that they participated in that and they took responsibility and they feel they feel all right about it as a result. So like, yes, I love the idea of adding an agency and autonomy as well as responsibility. And once that occurs, then people really do are much more likely to navigate those conversations. So one of the things that I, I both liked about this study and then also sort of took issue with is, is exactly that. And also their use of very specifically condom use and condom negotiation as sort of a stand-in for all safer sex negotiations and discussions. On the flip side, I appreciate that all throughout this, they were very specific in using the phrase safer sex versus safe sex, which is a one of those terms that gets thrown around that I can see you nodding, Janelle, is like, there is no safe sex, as you said, right? There's, there are, you can make it safer, you can be proactive, you can do a lot of things, but nothing is 100% safe. So I'm glad that they were intentional in that language. But on the, on the opposite side, um, I understand why they're using condom use and condom negotiation really specifically as their sort of prototype of how to understand these safer behaviors and these negotiations and uh, activities. 
but it's definitely a limitation in that that's just one example. Um, I don't know that there's a better way to do it per se. And the, the way that they did it, I think, like I said, it's, it's a good way to do it in this study, but I would love to see analysis and data on other safer sex behaviors and other types of negotiations. Um, so yeah, another, another forward direction to go in maybe since we're going to keep poking holes in this. <laughs> we really are. <laughs> and I don't mean to do that. It's, it's, I mean, this is just kind of a baseline study to me of, of all the potential areas that still need to be considered and addressed and really, and really, and really understood more clearly. I mean, they, and they identify that in the study, they even say like, we really also have more questions than we have answers because we don't necessarily know just because the study identifies that, um, consensual non-monogamous. So their CNM, their CNM folks are, using more are, are negotiating condom use more readily than folks who are non-consensually non-monogamous um, as well as I think single um, but anyway especially the folks who are non-consensually non-monogamous we don't necessarily know is that because there's already a lot more communication that happens anecdotally again we know in non-monogamy in, in consensual non-monogamy polyamory relationships um, swinging relationships there's a lot more communication that happens than when you see than you see in the monogamous world. And there's a lot more pre-communication about what is going to what each partner is going to need in order to move forward, what type of relationship is happening, what type of physical activities are happening. And is that so are they already inherently negotiating condom use? because that's part of the relationship dynamic and that's because of the community? Is it because of more education? We don't actually know the why. We just know that it's happening. And so this study, this study verifies that, yes, this is happening. There is more ne condom negotiation occurring in consensual non-monogamy than there is in other relationship structures, but we don't necessarily have the answer of why that's occurring. I guess on that finding, though, did you find it interesting that they were talking about condom use and condom negotiation um, in primary versus casual relationships? Because as my personal form of, of polyamory is like non-hierarchical, I, I don't operate with, with those terms very often. So there was a bit foreign to me for them to be used in this study. But when they're talking about condom use in a study, they are talking about it in, with primary partner versus casual partner um, and I think that that as you said before it, it might be kind of a bit telltale of like their personal uh, proclivities maybe but it could also just be because it was easier to code <laughs> or it could be because in Portugal that is uh, maybe the, the more culturally um, represented version of consensual nominogamy what were your thoughts on on that guys I, I think part of that might just be that it's based on you know, you talked about how how they were able to survey for consensual and non-consensual um, monogamy, which was basically, you know, for the first question was, do you are you in a long-term relationship without really qualifying what type of long-term relationship? And then the, to determine if it was consensual or non-consensual was, you know, do you have an agreement? Um, and then separately, or do you have other partners? So I think just in the way that they surveyed this, there, there isn't necessarily a way even if some of those people are non-hierarchical or don't have a single primary type partner or a single long-term partner, um, they don't really have a way to, to code those out separately based on the way that they surveyed it. But 
so that that's a again like it, it may show their bias it may show you know just the, the relationship structures that's most common in the portuguese context or the type of people who are using this app um you know the other way that you could look at that this primary versus casual is you know primary being more long-term partners which is kind of how they got to that because primary has a very specific context when you're talking about polyamory it, it has to do with a very specific type of relationship structure but based on how they surveyed this you could interpret primary as any sort of long-term committed relationship that has longevity and defined agreements versus casual partners being casual partners because that's a more broad term that might be a jump on my part um but i breaking it down by that i, I think it's a good way to, to differentiate those two things um how how is your condom negotiation and condom use in your long-term established negotiated relationships negotiate is not the right word but sort of more defined relationships versus maybe in new transient or casual relationships um, that might be a bit of a leap that i'm making there but i think the use of those terms is a little bit problematic but it that's also just the language thing you know what i'm thinking of like as you're saying that though i reckon if this had been written um based on an american study we would have seen the terms fluid bonding and couple privilege thrown in here i feel like this is this this is showing that it's not coming from like a pretty homogenous group of um, American swingers, for example, where where this this whole discussion maybe would would end up being talking about. I think they do mention at some point in here, like that there is there is some kind of like socially prized thing about not using condoms with a partner, and like the monoculture, this is that it increases intimacy, and it's it's sort of seen as, I guess. On the relationship escalator like you get to this level where like you phase out barrier use and that's just you know not really questioned um they do a really good job of not of not um like falling into that in this which because i think there's so many there's so many things <laughs> there's so many things to unpack from all of those myths that are, are so incredibly toxic and get in the way of having real conversations about about um engaging safely with partners I 100% thought the same thing. I was wondering why fluid bonded wasn't utilized. And I thought maybe just because then they'd have to define that term. Um, but they didn't define primary partner very clearly either. So I think it is. It's just a, it's just a terminology cultural thing um, is, 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 what I, is what I made the assumption around as well. And, that I, and I wasn't necessarily clear why that wasn't included but then you know obviously because it's a portuguese study then that really that makes a lot of sense to me and i think you're right too as i was reading through the whole thing i thought there's a couple of levels like you know the the fact that it was just focused on condom use um you know as i've been poking holes through the poor study this entire time but really i thought there's so much more that's encompassed in safer sex conversations and in um, and, and whether or not someone is negotiating and whether they feel that sense of sexual agency and that sexual um, self-control is it doesn't necessarily only involve condoms. And so I think that the conversation was uber narrow and then it didn't encompass what the dynamic would be, whether or not you have a fluid bonded or a primary partner and fluid bonded and primary partner would be, could be two different things. And so that wasn't identified very clearly either because, um, 
Yeah, and that and that just leaves some more questions, um, you know, to be further answered and, and delved into really when it comes to that. But like you said too, Claire, I mean, there's so much to unpack when it when the the study authors did a good job by not showing any inherent bias around the culture that exists where where there is this assumption that if you're in a mono relationship then you know fluid fluid bonding is the biggest level of intimacy and then there's no more safer sex conversations that need to occur and I mean that's just a giant problem in general culturally that we have and they did a good job of not being um, not showing any inherent bias if they had any. I mean, it was just pretty straight, straightforward that way. So I do commend them for that because that would have been hard for me to have written the study without pointing out some of that, um, some of that problematic mindset and approach and how that may have impacted the study as well. And I think it, and it would necessarily impact because anyone who has, had, who is identifying as a mono person, um, who has mono partnerships is going to immediately have those, those cultural bias. And, and obviously it exists across, across countries. It's not just something that occurs in the U S I think that this is pervasive throughout different cultures and different countries throughout the world. This is like my my calling card for almost every single episode of our regular <laughs> podcast. It's saying like, where is where's the international flavor? And um, obviously, when when we even speak about like agency of being able to negotiate uh, barrier use or, or any kind of safer sex practices, um, it's very easy to fall into kind of like an idea that we're coming at it from a whole bunch of unchecked privileges, including things like gender, things like like having a social uh, social access to certain um, both knowledge and actual like equipment or drugs or whatever, um, it it comes from like uh, I think so, something that the, that needs to be uh, made explicit. So when we're talking about uh, this paper, for example, they don't really do that. Yes, they say this is heterosexual um, Portuguese majority men, and we can kind of assume what that privilege might entail, but. It, it's very important to sort of to make that explicit and I would have liked the authors to just put in a paragraph here about what some of the the privilege is from which these these negotiations are happening I mean when when we talk about condom use and other safer sex discussions those are didactic processes right like just because somebody is engaging frequently in safer sex it might not be because they want to or really care it might just be because their partner always does that and it's the same the other way as well. You might very much want to have condoms involved in, in, in one way or another or have those discussions and not be able to. And the, it's not always just about the privilege, but I think that's a large part of it. So if we're going to assume that these men have all been, you know, they all have access to regular testing, that changes it. If they're going to assume that all these men have access to a level of education about um, the, the kind of um, STIs that can be uh, transmitted if you don't use condoms. We're assuming they already have a lot of that in place uh, because they're coming from Portugal and they're using a, a dating site that's specifically for extra didactic um, sexual experiences. But this, would, this is important to note every single time we talk about safer sex. It's important to not fall back on assumptions about what what the person has in the arsenal to start using. No, absolutely. I, just to, to say a couple of things based on what you were saying, Claire. One of the interesting things, I just went back because I remembered it, but looking at their uh, 
some of their demographic breakdown, it was actually really interesting to see that the education levels of the non-consensually non-monogamous and single people was actually skewed higher than the, the consensually non-monogamous people. So to your point about education, um, that's actually a really interesting thing to see that their, their decisions about condom use and then, but also compared to their overall higher education levels. Um, so that was one thing I just, as you were saying that, I was like, that was a really interesting finding that although in the consensually non-monogamous group, they had higher levels of condom use or reported condom use and negotiation, despite the, uh, the education levels. And so it comes back to that discussion of how much of it is to do with culture, how much of it is to do with relationship relationship type, how much is it to do with education and access to other things and resources. Um, but definitely, you know, this is it's a really narrow population focus. I did want to say, though, just because I don't know, I don't know if we've, we've hit it specifically, but despite all of our issues with this, they did find that throughout all of their data that the, the higher perceived sexual self-control was strongly positively correlated with both increased negotiation for condom use and increased frequency of condom use. Uh, so, and that was both with casual partners and primary partners. They do even question later, one of the things they bring up is that whether that correlation is a causal relationship. So whether like one leads to the other directly or there are other factors. So one of the things they said that we've touched upon, um, both of you actually mentioned was that you know, is it because that person is making the decision or because relationships are a dyadic process? And so there's another person making relationships. We're making, not making relationships. There's another person that's involved in making this decision. And they point out as a limitation, this study doesn't have a way to differentiate how much of these decisions and how much of this negotiation is solely due to the person that they surveyed and not due to the other person involved in each of those decisions, where it's the, whether it's the primary partner or the casual partner and they point out again the need for further research that can actually differentiate that and, and actually explore that relationship which is um, beyond just is there some correlation between the two things like what are the other factors that are playing into it because they weren't able to explore that in this study so i wanted to say i'm glad that they they they, they acknowledge that but i will say that the, the statistics on on these correlations are are pretty strong <laughs> So from a purely numerical sense, like the, the conclusions they're drawing are pretty strong based on their sample, but they should be a little bit tempered by the, the concerns that we've raised for other samples, for other cultures. And so my overall thought, my overall thought on this study, and, and, I, and that's probably why I'm poking a lot of holes, because I'm actually, what I found more interesting about the study was the holes, was the sample size. The actual outcome of the study was something I'm already very well aware of. And I, and I, we know, I know you all know, um, in the consensual non-monogamy community, polyamory community, that conversations around safer sex, just agreements in general around where the relationship is going, who else is involved, um, how, how to move forward and feel comfortable with those multiple dynamics, has to occur and almost always does on a much higher level than it does in monogamous communi communities. So in that sense, there's going to be an inherent 
um, benefit and an inherent perception of sexual self-control or sexual responsibility and agency that occurs because of that communication. So the actual outcome to me was like, duh, this is boring. But then I thought it's really fascinating. What I found fascinating was the holes, the sample size and some of the language that was used and why that was chosen, why we were just looking at condoms in particular when we're talking about safer sex. But to, to the benefit of this study, what I do think is, is great and I'm happy to see is that it's they didn't just say whether condoms were being used. It also talks about condom use negotiation. So it doesn't inherently um, add a bias of like basically if you're not using a condom that's bad or not safe. It's basically saying, are you talking about condoms? And so that conversation is, of course, probably a lot broader than, well, not necessarily, not necessarily broader because sometimes it is just simply a conversation about a condom and that's the, that's the limit and the extent of a safer sex conversation. But I'm glad that they talked about condom use negotiation and added that as part of their parameters, as part of their, um, as part of the numbers that they, what they quantified, because I think that's just as important as whether the condom's being used. Are we actually talking about it? Because that folks may decide not to, like we were talking earlier, folks may be fluid bonded, or they may, that might not be their safer sex practice that they're choosing to, to use as, as part of their, as part of their part of their arsenal. So I think that that negotiation implies that obviously there has to be conversation if there's negotiation happening. And that's that's leading to why I was like, well, of course, we know this because in non-monogamous relationships, there are more agreements, there are more conversations happening. What we didn't add in and what may not actually be applicable or really make this study true or like I know that this has been studied in different in different areas is I would have loved to have known from that sample size from this 500 some um, primarily men 77 percent male identifying folks how many of them have had STIs how many STIs like what was the comparison of the actual outcome of this negotiation in condom use compared to the monogamous folks in the study. You know, like I, I, I want to see the actual statistics of was this beneficial? Was this helpful? Um, and we know that, of course, that people um, who are still who are negotiating and utilizing condoms still contract STIs. Tons of people do. So it's just a risk reduction method. It doesn't eliminate the risk, of course. But I would have liked to have seen how that actually benefited overall sexual health perception and, and what that what that did to the actual outcome of infection. Although I am wondering if maybe the, the, by having that in the study, they would then also run into the issues of like, as you said, uh, there's, only a, a, there's only some STIs are contracted um, in a way that condoms would help you to reduce the risk of, right? Um, there are a lot of other STIs that are contracted through other ways, um, like for example, skin, skin contact or, or something. Um, and I'm wondering if they were to have then added this in, then they would have also had to have given themselves a task of being like, okay, but how does that actually relate to economy? So if, if you're trying to capture the, the kind of um, perceived health of the people that are in the study, then you also kind of have to make the effort, I think, to do it justice of talking about, because they're just talking about condom negotiation and condom use, you kind of also have to speak about just the, the STIs that would have potentially been reduced should... Like if condom negotiation had been employed or condom use had been employed, I'm wondering if that would have ended up kind of going down a longer rabbit hole, which, which 
you know, maybe that's a whole other study that they're going to publish based on, on this same data set. And it would also be interesting, but I think it would have given themselves like a huge bundle of wool to have to try and like extract because otherwise you'd fall into the sort of age old like fallacy, right? Of like, well, if you're, if you can track some, like, um, if, if you can track a, an STI, it's because of a, of a, you know, a lack of negotiation or a lack of barriers instead of, you know, just because of, well, any number of other factors that could, that could lead to contraction. Uh, and they would also, I think, have to spoke about treatment, I'm guessing, as well. That's true. I mean, that really could have played into it. I think that in, in terms of how they did this, to do this as an anonymous survey, using something pretty straightforward that can be a little bit more binary and a little bit more easily surveyed of condom use or not, and uh, questions about negotiation is the is something that you can survey anonymously on an, an online platform more easily. I, I would say then maybe more in-depth um, surveys about personal health information like STI or STD status. And then also drawing, there, there's another issue in terms of drawing correlations between that um, because somebody's, like we said, somebody's, somebody's STI status, if they, even if they have an STI, may not be related to the practices. They may have employed all sorts of great practices and just things happen. Or it might be that they, they, are, they, they are positive for something because in their youth, they behave differently than they do now. And they're now, they've now employed new practices. So I do think that there are some, some issues about trying to, not that it couldn't be done, but there are definitely some sort of, it would be a harder comparison and a harder statistical sort of conclusions to draw with factoring all those in. I think you would need a larger sample size and more detailed information than they might be able to do with what they were able to collect in this. Um, that's just a, that's just my inclination. I, I don't have the numbers to back that up, but I just, based on how they did this survey, um, it limits them a little bit in, in the kind of things that they could, one, collect safely, and two, the conclusions they can draw without a lot more history um, and more in-depth surveys to understand some of those other negotiations. Because definitely the discussion of, of overall healthy, healthier, safer sex uh, discussions and negotiations is much broader from a holistic standpoint versus condom use and condom use negotiation is something that can be narrowed down a bit. So just as a, another thought on, on definitely a direction they should go in or somebody should go in. Um, but I can see why they might not have done that. Somebody should do that study. <laughs> somebody should do a lot of studies. I would just be so worried though about like a study coming back being like, Oh, you know, people that are consensually non-monogamous have, you know, higher risk of STIs or STDs. I don't even know if that study actually really exists because it, but it would be like, God, can, can you imagine the headlines of that? That would just be like so upsetting for so many reasons. Not that it's bad to, to um, you know, to, to have, like contract an STI. And I'm sure that that's, it would just get so conflated and it would just be, oh, I could just see the, the storm of media now. I don't know though if those studies have been done. Janelle, maybe maybe you're more aware of the landscape. That's funny. I was going to ask y'all because I'm like, I would really love to see the study done only in that 
the misconception with non-monogamy is that folks who are non-monogamous are because of the amount of sexual partners they're one that they they inherently have more sexual partners than somebody who is monogamous and single um and again i'm not necessarily sure that that's true even though self-reported the single folks had fewer partners than the consensually non-monogamous ones but um, I would also need to compare one to one the individual's age and the first um, and the age at sexual debut. You know, there's a lot of like when you look at these research studies that the data does get conflated to like to form a certain narrative to play into whatever narrative either the people who are doing the study or whoever's reporting on the study, even just like the CDC STD results that just came out um, they're not actually really horrible or bad in, inherently. And but all of the all of the headlines are like it's an epidemic and such. So I would love to see this study done only to prove that consensually non-monogamous people of a specific age, of a specific um, gender identity, you know, very it'd have to be very, very clear and very specific so that it was comparing like apples to apples. But I would love that to show that that doesn't necessarily mean there have been more infections in that demographic than in a monogamous same age, same gender identity, you know, and because I know that that's not the case, at least again, anecdotally, all of this stuff is anecdotally through my experience of, you know, the last eight years running the STI project. But, um, you know, we see so many STIs across the board. It really just does not matter what your orientation, what your what your relationship structure is. And I would love to see that proven like but it'd have to be done so well that we couldn't poke holes in it like we're kind of doing here. You know, I mean, it really have to be very comparative and representative because otherwise that would get utilized in a way that was damaging to the polyamory community and that there's already so many misconceptions and stigmas associated with open open and consensually non-monogamous relationships that it could do harm so there would have to be folks intentionally doing it and with the with the thought process of making sure that we were adding adding layers of education rather than going backward a hundred percent, definitely agree. And I think uh, for me, I would find it also very interesting if there was, if, if anyone has any of these studies, by the way, if anyone listens to this and is like, I have that study, send it to me. But I, I'm wondering if um, consensually non-monogamous um, identifying people, so polyamorous or swingers or, uh, you know, whatever flavor of non-monogamy you're into, I'm wondering if, if, that I'm less kind of interested in the, the rates of infection. I would be more interested in like the rates of treatment because it would kind of, again, this is not based on this study. We've, we've left this study behind. But it would kind of seem to me commonsensical that, that if you're in a community that regularly discusses this, um, like the, the risks and, and regularly gets health checks. So we asked, again, speaking very specifically about like a Euro and American polyamorous community. But if you're in that kind of community, it's commonsensical to me that it, even if you have the same rate of infection, which I think is probably the case, um, as someone who is like single or monogamous or whatever, that you would actually have a higher rate of treatment, I think, you know, for, for the treatable SGIs if, um, and for, for the symptoms as well of STIs, I think that I, I would think that it would be commonsensical that people who engage in consensual non-monogamy also have, like, have a higher rate of seeking medical and also like psychological help for, for uh, like post-contraction. I would 100% agree with that. I think the other, the other thing that, that makes me think of is um, just attitudes towards 
um, towards STIs and STI infection, and especially in the non-monogamous community, which I would say from personal anecdote seems to be more sex positive and seems to be more open to discussing things and in an unbiased way, in a non-judgmental way. You know, the reactions, this is again anecdotal, um, but I, I would say that the reactions of people and the openness to discuss this and not to dismiss someone or to judge someone due to uh, any sort of, you know, sexually transmitted disease purely for that reason because of judgment and bias, it would be, I think, higher in these communities where people talk about this openly, where people understand that this is not some horrible, horrible thing, but it's just something that happens sometimes. And like there are, you know, ways to be safer and there's ways that, you know, to address this and it doesn't make you, um, you know, it doesn't have some of the negative connotations and the judgment that, that you see in sort of mainstream society. So I would say that, um, you know, another aspect of this is the, in the, and I don't want to say that all monogamous people are like that. That's not fair either. But I would say that because of the types of discussions that, that non-monogamous people have more intentionally about sex practices, relationships, involvements with other people, um, it's even something they they talk about a little bit in the paper, right? When they differentiate and they talk about the differences between consensually and non-consensually non-monogamous people, that one of the issues that they identified with non-consensually non-monogamous people not using condoms is because if they're being non-consensually non-monogamous, trying to use, asking to then start using a condom with their primary partner is a flag versus in the consensually non-monogamous context, however you structure that, how they define it here and in the broader sense, that's part of your normal discussion no matter which partner you're with. So that's definitely plays a part. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that it can be discussed openly, the fact that people deal with it more positively, that there is no stigma attached to it, or I shouldn't say that, but there's generally less stigma and less judgment and more willingness to communicate honestly and to accept people. I agree. I think across the board, even in the even in the consensual non-monogamy community, folks don't want an STI if they can if they can help it. I mean, nobody wants an infection of any kind if you can help it. But the communicating, like Claire said, it'd be so fascinating to know about treatment because that's one of the biggest that's one of the biggest problems that that disease intervention specialists have is that folks will get diagnosed and then they won't disclose to all of their partners or partner even. And so they're getting, they might get treated and they might get cured of an infection like a chlamydia gonorrhea or a syphilis, something that gets regularly tested and reported that they mentioned in the study. Those were the three infections that they actually mentioned in the original kind of onset, their introduction to why they were doing this study or some of their motivation behind it was because of the high numbers of in prevalence of infection. Um, but they aren't talking about the difference between that communication. And it relates, I think, like you just said, Sebastian, to the non-consensual, non-monogamous folks, so people who are having you know, side pieces, affairs, whatever we want to call them, if we want to be flipping about it, 
side relationships that they're not communicating to their primary partner about, then they're not also negotiating for condom use with that primary partner because that would flag that they may be having an extra an extra relationship, an extra didactic relationship, as well as they're probably not getting tested and or treated. And so everybody is at risk at that point in time. So there are some long-term like public health implications of this kind of mindset that really hasn't, I mean, this, this study is just tapping into the surface level of this. And I think that's too, like, ultimately the study is just telling us one thing that basically if you feel more sense of agency, if you feel more responsibility and sexual self-control over your relationships and the risks that you're, that you're perceived to be taking and engaging upon, then you're more likely to negotiate condoms and or use them. And that's kind of like, like I said earlier, it's kind of a duh moment for me, but there's a lot more nuance that could be, that could be deemed and discovered from this. That would be really interesting to find out. And that I think could help in the, in kind of sharing and shining a positive light on why these discussions are beneficial, why folks in the consensual non-monogamy communities or ethical non-monogamy communities are already having some of this and why there's not so much of a stigma. Sebastian, you mentioned the stigma and there's so much stigma associated when contracting an STI in the monogamy community that that might mean you're promiscuous, you've had tons of partners. And in in the ethical non-monogamy community, the number of partners you have is really not necessarily, nobody cares as much about that because that's that's kind of the point is that you have multiple partners. So it's not, there's not so much this inherent like slut shaming that occurs in the monogamous community that happens. So you're right that that actually is different and that then the communities do view number of partners and the results of having different partners or the results of sexual activity, which sometimes is an STI a little bit differently. I mean, that's actually a real true, um, an anecdote that I've seen as well. I actually have a question about this because I think that one of the things that I was surprised about with this paper is that they've put non-consensually non-monogamous and consensually non-monogamous people kind of in the same bucket. And what I've noticed about the poly community, which I don't consider myself to be a part of, I consider myself to be a like a close like acquaintance of. <laughs> um, and I I frequently see people who are um, in that community who consider themselves to be consensually non-monogamous, like really, really don't want to be lumped in with the non-consensually non-monogamous people. Like they, they definitely don't want to be anywhere near those people. Those people are the worst people, blah, 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 blah. And I, you know, seeing these, this is kind of like, there are two parts of people in this study, right? There's the single people and then there's the non-monogamous people. And then in the non-monogamous bucket there are the consensually non-monogamous and the non-consensually non-monogamous people i'm wondering if that was shocking for you guys um and whether you you think that kind of like potentially is like a, a bit of a mistake on, on the part of the authors or whether it makes sense i definitely think it makes sense uh, i'm if anything I, I wish they had broken out the single people um into two groups a group of people who are single and having multiple partners intentionally and openly and who are, who are single by choice or something and people who are doing it in a less than um, above board fashion, people who are, are doing that and not disclosing that to people. Um, because that, again, it impacts those discussions and how you make those negotiations, whether you're disclosing that you're single and having multiple partners as a single person and multiple casual partners or not. But I think that 
the differentiating consensually and non-consensually non-monogamous people is, is hugely important for the discussion because it's such a such a difference in approach to relationships and you lumping those two together i don't think would have made any sense to me but they didn't actually find that that many different thi- i mean may, maybe i'm incorrect but they, they found a, a much smaller difference in the correlation between consensually nominalist and non-consensually non-monogamous than i think they they were hoping to find even um, yes, consensually non-monogamous people are more likely to engage in part of negotiation and condom use, according to the study in this sample set. Um, but non-consensually non-monogamous people are, are also more likely to do that and, than the single people. And I think that they, there, were less, there were less huge differences than, than I was expecting. And so we end up just kind of in the same bucket as, as you know, quote unquote, like the cheaters. And I think a lot of polyamorous people really, really balk at that. They really don't want to be lumped in with with someone who would be kind of like dishonest because the whole thing about polyamory, right, is that you're you're super honest about what you're doing. Um, and the, the salient points that they managed to find between the two just, they, they weren't as large as I think even the authors were expecting to find. I think a couple of things. I mean, Claire, I think you're absolutely right that within the ethical non-monogamy community, you know, folks are not going to want that to be assumed that their behavior is the same as folks who are acting unethically um, or non-consensually. Although it's important to point out that even in ethical non-monogamy, non-ethical behaviors happen, you know, and folks don't always communicate all of the partners or when they, you know, when the partnerships occur, which really, which sexual activities occur. So there is some of that too even in consensual non-monogamy right but um what the distinction though between even though they didn't find a huge difference in non-consensual versus consensual folks who were utilizing and negotiating condoms they did find a difference whereas the non-consensual folks were only utilizing were primarily utilizing and negotiating condoms with their non-primary partner. So they weren't using, potentially, they weren't using condoms with their primary partner, but they were making sure to use condoms with any extra a didactic partnership that was going on. So I think maybe that was intentional on behalf of the um, on behalf of the research folks, the authors who were originally putting this together to try and make that distinction that there, and, the, and that also indicates that there is a level of risk that's occurring for those folks who believe they're in a consensual monogamous relationship, but one partner is doing something different and they may ne- be negotiating condoms with that extra partner, the other di- extra didactic partner, but there's still risk involved. And so there's a, a perceived level of like uh, of safe, safer behavior happening that really isn't necessarily occurring. And that would have been interesting to see what the, for me, that would have been interesting to see if there was, um, if that predicted potentially additional infection. And, um, and of course, like you said, we would have to, we'd have to be really specific. Um, and that could actually add to the stigma um, if it wasn't approached 
correctly and would add so many additional layers to this study. So I'm sure that's why that wasn't really layered on top of this and added to that. And those those questions weren't included. But yeah, the distinction for me was the primary in the non-consensual, the primary relationship versus um, and or primary and or fluid bonded. But they didn't actually say whether they were fluid bonded, just whether it was a primary and and those extra didactic relationships. And that's what was different between the consensual non-monogamous folks. The consensual non-monogamous folks, it seemed like were negotiating and or utilizing condom use across the board, whereas the condom use was only happening in the non-consensual for the extra relationships, if that makes sense. Yeah, really good distinction. Thank you. Overall, I'm very happy that this study exists. I think it is, there are a lot of things that could have been done differently potentially better and there's a lot of work that needs to be done and we certainly poked holes in a lot of those things which has been great but I do think you know, from 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 what I can find I've looked for other studies on this and there is not that much on this yet I don't think there's that much research out there um, really exploring this and how relationship agreements impact this and even though there could be more done and I'm hoping they'll do more at least having a baseline to start off to push people into further directions to either expand on this for them to expand on it. Um, I mean, maybe they'll listen to this and they'll be like, oh yeah, we should do this too. Or somebody else will find this study and realize that there's more work to be done and to try to expand on it. And some of the points that you've made Janelle about factoring in more of these complicating factors and, and these alternates and actually looking at outcomes. This is, I think, a really great first step into exploring this. It gives some really good directions to look at going forward. So I hope that in the next couple of years we'll have new and more in-depth studies with bigger sample sizes and, you know, more concrete variables to, you know, talk about. Yeah. And my kind of like, my overall view is that, like you said, I, I totally agree. Like, yes, there's so much more room for interpretation or there's, you know, so much more that we could have gleaned from this and, you know, that we poked holes a little bit in terms of their sample and, and who, who participated in the study and what we would have liked to have learned. But I think what's really valuable and lovely about this is that in their general discussion toward the end, they talk about how we've learned and this validates and further um, further substantiates the fact that the further that the more we feel our sense of sexual agency, like Claire and I were talking using that word earlier, but they're using their what do they call it, their sexual self-control, the more you feel that, the more likely you are to negotiate safer sex or in, in this case condom use and talk about it and or use condoms in general. And I think that they were like, their, their deduction was that how do we potentially get the single category, the folks who were identifying as single, whether and what we don't know is whether they were monogamous or non-monogamous single folks, um, how do we get them to feel that sense of agency, to feel that sexual self-control? And that's something that we could delve into. But I actually want to flip it and look at it from the other direction is that there's so much to be learned. And I wish that this would be communicated a little bit more clearly and, and really and really encourage mainstream is there's so much to be learned from the consensual non-monogamy or polyamory or ethical non-monogamy, however you want to classify it, depending on where you're from and which country you're located in, of course. Um, from that community, there's so much to be learned about the communication that's occurring because obviously this study indicates that there is a lot more sense of sexual self-control, agency and or autonomy, ability to negotiate and navigate these kinds of safer sex conversations and, and specifically as it relates to condom use and or condom negotiation. So I think there's something that 
the monogamous community can learn, and I wish that that were encouraged a little bit more, instead of saying, how can we get the monogamous community to do this? Like, what can we learn from the folks who are already practicing this and who are finding really positive relationships and back and, and, and finding positive health outcomes as a result of this communication and this discussion that's already occurring? That's what I'd like to, like, put out into the mainstream. You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to pollypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books.